One of my favorite shows is America's Funniest Home Videos. I can't stop laughing at the videos which show people slipping and sliding on ice. Now, I know firsthand that falling is actually not very funny because it led to my shoulder surgery, but I sometimes laugh so hard at those videos, I end up crying. It's very unsettling, isn't it, to lose your footing? Just ask the players who played in the slippery Super Bowl this past Sunday. Well, we've been learning that there is nothing funny about how Eve started slipping and sliding into sin when the serpent unleashed his temptation tactics on her. Today's message is closely connected to last weekend's, where we learned that to be forewarned of Satan's strategy is to be forearmed. If you missed that sermon, head over to our YouTube channel, our mobile app, or to edgewoodbaptist.net. Here's what we learned about the schemes of Satan from the first five verses of Genesis chapter 3. He starts by coming in disguise and now starts working his ways through doubt, demeaning, distortion, denial, and appealing to Eve's desires. In one sense, the serpent's insidious and sinister work was finished because Eve now is left to her physical appetites, to her inflamed emotions, her fleshly ambitions. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to join me as we read together Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 7. If you'd stand with me in honor of God's word. Let's begin in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You may be seated. Well, since we used six words to capture the essence of temptation last weekend, we're going to use six words today that all begin with the letter D to describe Eve's slippery slide into sin. This passage today shows how humanity went from the very good of Genesis chapter 1 Two very broken in a matter of seconds. Here's our main idea. To avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Notice first, delicious. The initial step Eve took is found in the first phrase of chapter 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, the word saw means to gaze, to behold. She locked in to that forbidden fruit. And as she gazed at that forbidden fruit, she saw that it was good for food, which means that she found it pleasant attractive, appealing. She somehow decided the fruit from this tree was more delicious than anything else around her. 
You know, when you think about it, most temptations begin when we see something shiny, something sensual, something spectacular. Well, that's why those $7 million alcohol ads during the Super Bowl only showed people having fun, smiling, connecting with buddies and friends. Now, they don't show the effects of alcoholism and addiction. See, once Eve fixated her focus on that which was forbidden became all-consuming. This is what happened to Samson. Let's go back, Old Testament, Judges 16. Samson went to Gaza, wasn't supposed to go there, and then he saw a prostitute and he went into her. Or how about Joshua chapter 7? This is speaking of Achan. Achan said, when I saw through his eyes among the spoil this beautiful cloak, 200 shekels of silver, bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. Friends, to avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Next word is delightful. After seeing how delicious the tree would be, Eve is now mesmerized. She's thinking, she's fantasizing about how much delight it would bring her. Notice the phrase, and that it was a delight to the eyes. That refers to a greed and craving. I agree with Nate Pickowitz, who tweeted this, follow your heart has ended more marriages, mutilated more bodies, destroyed more souls, and ended more lives than the devil could have ever imagined. It is hell's most effective slogan. Our eyes are the window through which our wants turn into cravings. I think of Psalm 101, verse 3, which calls us to be careful. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Or how about Job? In the midst of his suffering, he's scraping open sores off his body with broken pieces of pottery. His friends are letting him have it. He's all alone. He's isolated in his pain, and he's concerned about his own purity. And he says, I made a covenant with what? With my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? So to avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Notice next, desirable. So she focuses on on how delicious it's going to be and how delightful the fruit would be to eat. Now Eve desires it more than anything and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word for desire is translated as covet, has the idea of craving intensely, like she's got to have it. It even refers to passionately craving. Notice Eve is desiring wisdom, which seems like a good thing, which is acting with insight and having the ability to understand, but there's more going on. You see, instead of accepting God's definition of good as declared seven times in chapter 1, Eve decided to follow her own definition of good. In chapter 2, verse 9, God had given every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But what did Eve do? She redefined, 
came up with her own definition. She redefined God's parameters according to what she found to be delicious and delightful and desirous and desirable. I don't even have to illustrate that from our culture, but that's the society we're swimming in. And for some of us, that's the world we're living on the inside. Eve's descent into depravity is an illustration of James chapter 1. Check out these words, but each person is tempted when he's lured. That's like a fishing term, lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's the Bible's description of sin's slippery slope. Proverbs 27.20 says, Never satisfied are the eyes of man. Frank, get this. Sin is never satisfied. It always wants more and more. Actually, let me change that. Demands more and more. And this downward spiral into sin just accelerated when Eve allowed herself to start slipping. She found the fruit to be physically appetizing, good for food. That temptation looks like it will will meet a legitimate physical need, like food or sex or comfort. Notice next, it had this emotional attractiveness to it. It was a delight to the eyes. And so that temptation, that enticement comes to us as delightful, not disgusting. Disgusting. Remember, Satan doesn't tempt us with something ugly and atrocious. No, he always uses something attractive, like the newest, the biggest, the greatest, the prettiest, the most handsome. And notice it was spiritually appealing. This appealed to Eve's need for self-fulfillment, her own ambition. Here's what I think. I think Eve fell even before she ate the fruit. And likewise, our acts of disobedience against God begin in the mind. It's what we think about, those things we fantasize about. And then they come down and they hang out in our hearts where they become these strong desires. And then when we're faced with an opportunity, many move forward. Write this down. When you start fondling forbidden fruit, you're already sliding down the slippery slope of sin. Don't spend time thinking about how nice it would be or how good it might feel or how much you deserve it. These first three sin slippages correlate to a verse in the New Testament. Check this, 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. Incidentally, we see these same three tempt points when Satan unleashed his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. You can dive deeper into that, Matthew chapter 4. But brothers and sisters, we must do battle against the tempter's 
tactics because he will do anything he can to make forbidden fruit seem attractive, appealing, and enticing. So to avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Notice next, disobedience. Once Eve perceived that this snack of sin would be delicious, delightful, and desirable, she plunged, sadly, headfirst into disobedience. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That word took indicates this was a decisive act of Eve. The word means capturing, grabbing, seizing. Now she wants it. She's been fantasizing. It's in her heart. Boom, she grabs it and takes it. This was not some unintentional accident. No, she didn't just touch it. She deliberately took. She intentionally ate. Well, notice how ordinary this sin is. She took of the fruit and ate. It doesn't say she committed murder. I mean, one of her sons does later. It doesn't say she stole. It says she took of the fruit and ate. By the way, contrary to popular understanding, there's no biblical evidence the fruit was an apple. You're going, what? No, it's not in the text. It doesn't say it was an apple. It might have been. I learned this week that Michelangelo used forbidden figs when he painted the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. So where did that idea come from? Well, perhaps from Latin. The word for apple and the word for evil is the same. And the Hebrew is not all that helpful because the word peri simply means produce. I do find it fascinating that the term Adam's apple originated from folktale to explain the bulge in a person's larynx as caused by the apple sticking in Adam's throat. (laughs) Helping this legend along is that the protrusion is more more pronounced in men than in women. Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) You're welcome. That was all just extra. Well, after Eve ate and she didn't immediately die... She gave the fruit to Adam. Remember, Eve was created to be his helper. She's not being a helper here. You see, Eve had joined Team Serpent and was now doing his dirty work for him. Have you noticed how most people don't like to be alone in their sin? So they encourage others to sin with them? I mean, sexual sin is like that for sure. I think back when the Lord saved me by his grace for his glory, when I was in college, when I was partying and doing a bunch of stuff, when he saved me, my buddies still wanted me to do the same things I was doing. They were trying to get me to join them. And my mind goes to 1 Peter chapter 4, which says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you, the you is a Christian, when the Christian does not join them in the same flood of debauchery 
and they malign you. Here's a principle. We never fall alone. Others are always hurt by our unholiness. Our disobedience damages others. Oh, would you observe Adam? Where was Adam? Did Eve eat the apple and then go look for Adam and give it to him? No, it says that Adam was with her. That word with means to have companionship together. If you go back to the opening verses of Genesis 3, when you see the word you, it doesn't come out in English, but in Hebrew, it's plural. So Adam was there the whole time. So it's easy to think this was all Eve's fault, but God holds Adam responsible. I wrote down five reasons why I think so. Number one, Adam was told to work and keep the garden in Genesis 2.15. He was to guard the garden and keep out anything that would harm the harmony. Number two, Adam was given the prohibition to not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.16 and 17. It was his responsibility to make sure Eve knew that and that Eve did not eat. Number three, Adam was given dominion over the animals. Adam would have named the serpent. Adam should have demonstrated that authority and responsibility by taking a shovel, if there was a shovel then, and slicing the serpent's head off. According to 1 Timothy 2.15, Eve was deceived. Adam deliberately disobeyed God. And number five, as the leader, God clearly holds Adam responsible for their sin, and it's because of Adam's disobedience that the whole world, that ugliness in your heart, in my heart, that selfishness, that desire to sin, where's that all come from? It's because of Adam's disobedience. Our whole world has been plunged into darkness and despair and depravity. Romans 5.19, for as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners. Let me see if I can say it in two sentences. When Eve sinned, Eve sinned. When Adam sinned, all sinned. We all fell with him. Speaking of men, let me address men for a bit. I had some guys out in the lobby after the first service this morning. They were kind of giving me dirty looks, and their wives were elbowing them during the service. So, But I, I say these words to myself as well. I'm afraid there's a little bit of Adam in all of us men, and a lot of Adam in many of us. Adam was available, but he was absent. He was present, was right there with Eve, but he was passive. He saw the serpent, he heard the serpent's words, and he said nothing. He noticed Eve was on a slippery slope, but he did nothing to bring her back. Guys, we cannot just go with the flow. When you and I don't lovingly lead our families, our wife and children pay the price. So guys, it's time for us to wake up. 
to stand up, to man up, grow up, love up, and rise up. And as part of our vision, our everyone vision for 2023, we're committed to grow our ministry to men, not just so that we can have a ministry where guys come and hang out. No, so we can equip men to be godly, loving leaders to step up and do what God's calling us to do. And so there's a couple events coming up. The first is an equipping breakfast where I'm inviting every man to come to that. That's Saturday, March 11th. And then we'll have our first men's retreat, April 28th and 29th. My pastor friend, Ben Lovelady, he pastors at First Baptist in Silvis, has some great insight when he points out that God's original design was inverted. God to man to woman to animal. And with this, in chapter 3, it's the animal who speaks to the woman who gives to the man, and they all disobey God. The rapidity of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin is staggering. The woman saw, she grabbed and took. She ate, she gave, he ate. Satan could tempt Eve, but she didn't have to take it. Satan couldn't cram the fruit down her throat. Eve couldn't say the devil made her do it, although she attempts that excuse in a few more verses. But she certainly followed the serpent. Adam followed Eve, and no one followed God. And every human being continues to pay the price for their folly. Yeah, ouch is right. Yeah, for all of us. Now, you might not expect to hear what I'm about to say in church. But but let me just be honest. Sin is enjoyable. Sin is pleasurable. Isn't that why we do it? Feels good to gossip, doesn't it? It's like a, a morsel. It tastes good. Feels good to sin. Ah, but the Bible's very clear. Hebrews 11.25 refers to sin as a fleeting pleasure. It's a pleasure for a season and then not so much. You see, the satisfaction of sinning, and many of us know this firsthand, the satisfaction of sinning turns to dissatisfaction and shame very quickly. So to avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Number five, disgrace. Adam and Eve now quickly discovered forbidden fruit was not as tasty as they thought it was going to be. They now experience major spiritual indigestion. Have you noticed how temptations, which seem so good, lose their appeal once you give in to them? See, after they disobeyed, they became immediately disgraced. I'm in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. This refers to their conscience. Mark this. Sin never makes good on its promises. And here then are two consequences. First, opened eyes. That's actually a fulfillment of Satan's promise. Uh, Look back with me at verse 5. For God knows, this is Satan talking, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Thinking they would find enlightenment. It's not what they found. 
Now they're exposed to the reality of their evil rebellion and the sinful depravity and the horror of their own unholiness. Their eyes are now open to the reality of what they did and they feel exposed. They feel guilty and they feel alienated from the Almighty. According to Job 14.3, having your eyes opened refers to being brought into judgment. Secondly, exposed nakedness. Somehow they knew that they were naked. Oh, look with me back at verse 25 of chapter 2. It's the last verse of chapter 2. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's not like they suddenly became naked. No, it says they were naked, but now it's not good. Why? Because now they feel fully exposed. They feel exposed before God and before each other. Interestingly, this is the same word used in chapter 2, but the spelling is slightly different to show something fundamentally has changed. To be naked was often used to refer to a state of scarcity, a state of vulnerability. Ezekiel 16.39 describes what is done to enemies to bring shame and reproach upon them. Listen, they will strip you of your clothes and leave you naked and bare. The knowledge of good and evil did not make them like God. The knowledge of good and evil made them feel guilty. They knew more, but that additional knowledge was evil. Nancy Guthrie captures it well. They did attain the knowledge of good and evil, but their new knowledge was from the standpoint of becoming evil and remembering how good they once were. They traded the freedom of enjoying what is good for slavery to what is evil. Their nakedness, once a symbol of freedom and mutual enjoyment, suddenly became a symbol of shame. We could say it like this, every temptation is a lie wrapped in a promise of freedom that leads only to bondage. Yes, Satan gives people what they want so they will eventually get what he wants them to have. Guilt, shame, and separation from God. And Adam and Eve's sin sent shockwaves through the entire universe, causing collateral damage in all of creation and in every culture. So to avoid sliding into sin, make sure you're tethered to God's truth. Notice next, disguise. No longer do they feel safe around each other. Now they're self-conscious about being seen, so they sewed fig leaves together in a vain attempt to cover themselves, and because of the shame of their sin, they immediately tried to cover up. Oh, look at the last part of verse 7, and they sewed fig leaves together. They made themselves loincloths. A fig leaf, why'd they use a fig leaf? What was one of the largest leaves available to them? You know, I enjoyed watching the Super Bowl, which means I enjoyed watching the game (laughs) and some of the commercials, but there was one commercial that made me cringe. It mocked God and it made fun of Adam and Eve's sin. It got my attention because the setting is the Garden of Eden. 
And that's what we're learning about these weeks. The setting took place right after Eve ate the fruit. Adam looks horrified on his face by what she did, and he realizes he's naked. But then the story goes off the rails when a talking squirrel shows up and offers Eve avocados from Mexico that are supposed to solve their sin problem. Now, this commercial minimized the consequences of original sin and that avocados are the way of salvation. And towards the end, a man appears holding a sign. The words on the sign read this, the end is not near. That's a lie from the pit of hell that Satan had already planted in Eve's mind. You can sin and get away with it. There is no judgment to come. Now, their fig leaves concealed, but they did not really cover. In fact, the standard way that you and I try to get rid of sin is concealment. (laughs) But our attempts work no better than theirs did. Because the relationship between Adam and Eve was fractured, they attempted to hide and cover their nakedness from one another. It's important to note, they did not confess their sin. They simply tried to cover it up. Proverbs 28, 13, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Write this down. Sinners can never adequately cover up their own sin on their Ray Pritchard has some great insight. The fig leaves were never going to be a long-term solution. They were only a temporary solution at best. There's so many problems with fig leaves. They fall apart easily. They itch. It's hard to find the right size. And every day or two, you've got to get a new outfit. Man's puny attempt to cover his sin is always doomed to failure. Speaking of Pastor Ray, he preached a message in 1993, that's 30 years ago. That sermon is the best treatment on original sin I have ever heard. Sections of that sermon formed the basis for this book called Anchor for the Soul, which now has over one million copies in print distributed free all over the country. Since this is such a critical doctrine, and it comes right from Genesis 3, I want to take a few minutes and share some highlights of that sermon that Ray called Paradise Lost. Here's his main text, Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. By the way, Ray's doing an online Q&A a week from Tuesday. Here's part of what he preached. Something has gone wrong with the human race. No one can successfully deny that fact. We're not all that we could be. And no matter how much we boast of our technological achievements, the sorry state of man's inhumanity to man always grabs the front page. Something evil lurks inside the heart of every person. No one is immune. No one is exempt, and no one is truly innocent. Call it what you will, a twist, a taint, a bent to do wrong. Somewhere, somehow, somebody injected poison into the human bloodstream. That's why even when we know the right thing to do, we go ahead and choose to do wrong, deliberately, repeatedly, defiantly. 
What is it that makes us repeatedly do that which can only hurt us? It's the doctrine of original sin. We know what is right, and yet we deliberately choose to do what is wrong. How did sin first enter this earth? Paul offers a simple one-word answer, Adam. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. So here's Adam. He's placed in paradise with everything good. Only one tree forbidden. The serpent tricked Eve into eating the forbidden fruit. She gave some to Adam. He ate too. And it was through that deliberate choice that sin entered the world. If you had been there that day, all you would have seen was a man taking fruit from his wife and eating it. No lightning, no thunder, no bells, no scary music in the background. Yet from that one act of disobedience, awful results flowed out across history. Theologians have a word for this event. They call it the fall. It means that when Adam ate the fruit, he fell from a state of innocence into a state of guilt. He fell from grace to judgment. He fell from life to death. He fell from heaven to hell. It's impossible to understand the world as it is today apart from the reality of Adam's deliberate sin. Our world makes no sense otherwise. Why do you sin? Why do you repeatedly choose to do wrong? Well, there's an answer that lies on the surface. It's so simple that you may miss it. You sin because you have a sin nature. That is, you were born with an inner bent toward sin. Paul says it like this, because all sinned. Notice that's in the past tense, all sinned. Not all sin, that's true, or all are sinners, equally true. The past tense is crucial for understanding Paul's point. This verse is pushing you and me back to the Garden of Eden, back to that fateful moment when Adam ate the forbidden fruit. In some mysterious way, you were there, and I was there. In some strange way, when Adam sinned, you sinned with him. And so did I. This is the doctrine of original sin in its plainest form. It means that when Adam sinned, you sinned. When Adam disobeyed, you disobeyed. When Adam fell, you fell. When he died, you died. To say it another way, although you and I were not historically there in the garden because we are descendants of Adam, we suffer the consequences of what he did. Theologians call Adam the federal head of the human race. When Adam was created, he stood as the divinely appointed representative for the whole human race. What happened to him happened to all of us because in God's eyes, he was appointed to act in the place of everyone who would later come after him. Ray has a very simple illustration, very powerful. Adam was the driver of the bus of humanity, and when he drove the bus over the cliff, we went down with him. He was at the controls when the airplane crashed. It doesn't matter that we were back in the coach section watching a movie. When he crashed, we all went up in flames. That leaves us with only one question. What is the remedy for my sin? The answer is simple. You need the gift of God, Romans 5.15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. That gift came by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ. How do you get that gift? It's a gift. It must be free. If it's not free, it's not really a gift. And since it's a gift, you can only do one of two things with it. You can accept it or reject it. That's all. There are no other options. The whole message comes down to one simple question. Have you ever accepted God's free gift of salvation that came through the one man, Jesus Christ? 
Have you reached out the empty hands of faith and said, yes, Lord Jesus, I open my heart to you. I repent. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. If you go to hell, Ray writes, don't blame Adam. It's not his fault. If you end up in hell, blame yourself. It will be your fault for not accepting God's free gift. He gave it so you would accept it. That means your destiny is now in your own hands. What will you do with the free gift of God? Friends, the only way our sin and shame will be covered is if God covers it. I wonder today if you're ready to stop trying to conceal it, stop trying to cover it up, and you're ready to start confessing it. God set his plan of redemption in motion right after Adam and Eve sinned, whereby a second and final Adam would be sent to redeem the fallen race. I can't wait for you to see this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. See, the only way out is by eating the fruit of another tree, the cross of Christ. Guthrie adds, by eating of the fruit of this tree, all those who have descended from Adam and Eve can reclaim the life they lost and restore the relationship of glad dependence and obedience they left behind. We've been praying Psalm 85, verse 6, for the last several months. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? I want to add the next verse. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Perhaps you've been watching what's happening at Asbury University. I'm going to go back to the former president of Asbury who said this in 1970 when there was another revival. Give me one divine moment when God acts, and I say that moment is far superior to all the human efforts of man through the centuries. Yesterday, an Edgewood member uh, posted an ad that appeared in the newspaper, in the dispatch. Check this out. April 19th, 1952, Edgewood Baptist Church, I circled it. When will revival come? This church has always asked that question. And friends, it's time for us not only to ask it, but to be praying for God to revive us and to awaken his sleepy church. Jonathan Edwards defined revival as the acceleration and intensification of the normal work of the Holy Spirit. Missionary Norman Grubb adds, revival is when the roof comes off and the walls go down. When we get things right with God and the walls we put up with people that we're in conflict with, they come down. 